Hey, really good friends. This podcast contains adult content and language. Listen with care. Hello. Hello. And welcome. To Historically Really Good Friends. A queer history podcast. I'm Rachel Craig. And I'm Jared Femblow. Howdy, hey. Hola. Como estas? Bien. Gracias. I'm good too. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) Sorry. I don't want to embarrass myself with my... No, that's okay. I um, don't speak Spanish. I want to. Yeah. I don't either. I also want to, but the barrier for me to take more language Mm. classes like after college is the embarrassment of then having to like speak, like attempt to then speak the language. So like I took Arabic classes and very Mm -hmm. much enjoyed them. But then when a family member of mine who speaks Arabic was like, oh, talk to me in Arabic. I was like, absolutely not. I don't know anything. How dare you even ask? Because I was just too nervous to sound like an idiot. What did you take in high school? Spanish. Oh, you did? I, yeah, we were not in that. Our school offered like two or three language classes, maybe. Mm-hmm. You and I were, were not in the same one. So I. Th- no, because, and I feel like I talked about this probably in the first episode with Marie Antoinette. I took French because my brother had taken French and my sister had <laughs> taken Spanish, and they're twins. So they, when they went into language classes, mm-hmm. my sister took Spanish, my brother took French. And then when it was my turn to decide if I want to take French or Spanish. My brother was like, well, our last name is French. And when are you going to speak Spanish? And I was like, oh my God, you make so many good points. (laughs) This is, that's so true. So I was like, I'm going to take French. And then I took French all through elementary school, middle school Uh and high school. And where am I going to speak French? Yeah, I mean. Like I live in Southern California now. Like I would have been so much better off if I had taken Spanish. Yeah, that's one thing that I am so regretful of that I did not keep up with my Spanish language learning and like attempt to practice more. And then when I went to college, just like as an 18 year old, completely switched the language that I had learned all of Mm -hmm. my life. Because now I can't speak any, either of them functionally. Oh, well, I can't speak French either. I lost all of it. It sucks. I think that's like a very um, American thing, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, to to like not have any kind of second language, language skill, yeah, mm-hmm. aside from English, and I like, genuinely well, hate like, it. Like white American, like there are a lot of yeah, families. I would, I would that... say yeah, like non-immigrant families, mm-hmm. like people who have been like more than first generation Americans, right? Yeah, and people who don't speak an, another language in their family, like that's the thing too. My my family is like. A New Jersey fake Italian so they're like we speak Italian it's like no you don't speak Italian like I love you so much and but that's not it you don't speak Italian like I'm so, I'm sorry you don't you've never been to Italy like our last ancestor to come here from Italy was like a few generations ago you just weren't that's not it stop no. it <laughs> but do you feel yeah. like I also I don't know like when people are are like I'm 40 percent Italian oh. <laughs> and thirty percent Polish and twenty yeah. percent. What? It's what always you? white people that do that. Yeah. First Let's of do all. that it's... right now. Okay. What, so in your whiteness, it's... what are you? <laughs> my different levels of whiteness. Now, uh-huh. first of all, I by 
by standards of which I also think is so funny that Italians are people of color means <laughs> have you seen they're any not. of those no yeah. they're not no 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 this is fully jokes fully jokes but it was like yeah. in the in like my ancestors would have argued when coming to America from and I'll oh, get absolutely. the breakdown but from Ireland Poland and Italy that they were at one point people of color or like were treated as such and oh same with same with my family yeah so like I, 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 we can't get into how that's not the same, right? But right. I just think it's very. So I really love if anybody has Italians are POC memes, please send them to me because I love I love them. But I am fifty percent Italian. Mm-hmm. I am, and then like the other fifty percent is split between Irish and Polish. I guess that's it. You're just like three clean things. I'm, I'm just three. Yeah, I'm, yeah. Wow. I mean, as far as I can tell at mm-hmm. at the moment, Have also ever... like the Ireland things are difficult because like like borders changed quite a bit over there. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know. I think my family's from different parts of Ireland and mm-hmm. Northern Ireland. So like that's a thing. But have you ever done a DNA test? My sister did, so I just mm-hmm. was like, you stole uh, what? Her. Yeah, I was like, yeah, what yeah. genetic predispositions do you have and like what's our heritage so um Uh that's how i confirmed you're like similar yeah uh, yeah i would say my my sister and i have similar enough dna that i'm confident with her results sure okay (laughs) okay what what is yours i actually don't really know i feel like you've got a bit going on i do this is where the whiteness jumps out okay because my last name is french but we're only like 2% 2% French. Like, we're not really French. Um, I'm, like, heavily, heavily Ashkenazi Jew. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So, like, like Russian Jew. Like, my mm. grandmother's from, like, what's what's the really northern part of Russia? Siberia? Yeah. Siberia is, like, the Russian, like, wilderness tundra. Like, yeah. so there's that's not where- that much going on in Siberia. That's where my great grandparents are from on my mom's oh. side. Yeah, like oh, we're from like si- Siberia, Russian Jews, right? But so, then they fled to Israel, which wasn't mm. Israel. That's a whole nother can of worms. There was the British <laughs> Mandate, right? Okay. She was born in the 1920s, so that was okay. Way before Israel was so they were in like occupied territory. They were in the British Mandate colony okay. occupied territory. Okay. Okay. My grandfather was born in budapest so he's hungarian but his parents were from like austria or poland or something Mm. it was like all of those like balkan regions it's a lot of jewish and then so that's why you're so aggressive (laughs) me you're like yeah Uh, me aggressive yes Hmm. no one's ever told me that before (laughs) (laughs) that's why you're just so standoffish and not friendly at all (laughs) i would say i'm so welcoming i am sorry so warm also a joke i don't think we have many people from the balkans listening but my my predisposition is to be a little nervous a little um like i have a little hesitation about about eastern europeans generally (laughs) (laughs) yeah so i'm like eastern european a lot and then my grandmother on my dad's side dot she um she grew up in brooklyn and like yeah. Her family was in Brooklyn for as long as she could remember. And then okay. 
she her her maiden name was Rodriguez, and she always made a point to be like, "Is Rodriguez the the Portuguese Rodriguez, not the Spanish <laughs> oh, Rodriguez?" No. So yet yeah, so interesting that you say that. First of all, I just like to take note of what your family probably has endured um, from coming, especially from Siberia. And look at us now. Look at where. <laughs> Look at us. Here I am, my little gay self, sitting in my apartment in Los Angeles, drinking a white claw and making a podcast about other queer people. Like that's that's just so funny to me. But also, I will say to my family, so the the nearest person to have immigrated to America is my grandmother on my dad's side. Mm -hmm. But her and my grandfather grew up in Brooklyn and Mm -hmm. and my dad grew up there as well and yeah what people endured in in Brooklyn New York also (laughs) also from like the early 1900s through today Mm -hmm. New York has changed and Mm -hmm. Brooklyn has been so gentrified just to throw it out there too both of us are white so whatever we've endured and our families have endured um, people of color have endured oh, sure. a lot worse. So sure. um, not I, saying that we have endured more oh than my God, others. No. Just to put it out there, especially since like Juneteenth has just passed. We just had it. Correct. Absolutely. Totally. Like again, all jokes equivalent yeah. to Italians are POC and jokes. Right. Well, now that we've completely disclosed our entire ethnic background to the entire that's not interesting really no for what 10 full minutes yeah do you want to do a little historically really good friends clean up housekeeping housekeeping corner (laughs) i would love to this is this will be my housekeeping responsibilities for the week so let's do it here okay do you want to start let's cover that Sure. So welcome, first of all, to some of our new listeners. Happy Pride as well. We're still in June at time Mm -hmm. of recording. So if you're just listening, make sure to check out our most recent episodes. Or if you have been a listener and just haven't been able to catch up yet because you're super busy with your very fun Pride and summer events. No excuses. No, I'm going to say all good. (laughs) I'm going to say all good. Um, but the episodes are there for you to listen mm-hmm. so be sure to check them out last week's episode was on stormy delavier and simon and coley and then the previous week was sappho and lesbia hartford so be sure to check those out or just scroll through and see what maybe strikes you all of our episodes are in the same format so check out whatever you'd like yeah and this is this is episode 20, so we have 20 really great episodes waiting for you. That means there's 40 stories, 40 individual mm-hmm. topics. Topics. Mm-hmm. So you got and a lot of options. You know what? I didn't even think we would get past episode 7. So the fact I'm... that we're here at episode 20 already, that's... Woo! We are <laughs> doing the work. We are, and it's all for you. I'm so glad Jared had so much faith in us, but you sure. demonstrated to us as listeners mm-hmm. that it's worth it. We should keep it up. Speaking of our listeners, we want to hear from you. This is just yeah. a little reminder or a little announcement if you're new here that we want to hear your listener stories. We want to hear from you folks. So if you want to write in your coming out stories, if you want to write a story about when you knew you were queer, if you want to write about a queer figure in your life that 
has really shaped who you are or how you see things or are just really proud of them and want us to read it and kind of cement it in 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 the world and in queer history send us an email at historically really good friends at gmail.com or you can send us a message on instagram at historically really and we'll 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 read back your stories i think it's important to normalize as many queer stories as we can, especially with all the Mm -hmm. fucked up things going on in the government, especially in the United States Mm -hmm. and in the world in general. So we just want to kind of tell as many queer stories as we can and show examples of, you know, queer lives and, and queer happenings and in, in the modern time, as well as in yesterqueer. So Mm -hmm. send us your stories. We want to hear, and I'm sure a lot of other people want to hear them too. If you want to hear any examples of stories that we've heard in the past or what listeners have sent in, we have two listener story episodes also on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen, on our regular page. And it does really just make us happy to be able to hear for ourselves and also read out and, as Jared said, cement some of your stories. So please, if you're feeling courageous one night, Mm -hmm. send us your story. And they don't have to be long. They don't have to be in any specific format. They can be anonymous if you want them to be. Just write them how you want us to read them because we will just read whatever you write, including the subject line. So do with that what you will. And you will send us your stories. (laughs) You better. And look how clean it is now. Oh my gosh, all of that housekeeping was worth it. It's sparkling clean. So tidy. With that, now that we've decluttered, we've Marie Mm -hmm. Kondoed, our podcast we can we can find joy in bringing you some stories hell yeah okay so i am so excited to bring you the life and times of miss major griffin gracie who some of our listeners may have heard her story before may have seen some of her activism work she is a really prominent figure in the trans rights movement in Stonewall. Mm-hmm. So I just felt it was especially fitting to maybe tell for the first time, retell some of her story. And I have was truly taken on a journey reading through um, my research this week, which includes the Miss Major film, them newsletter, the Trans Visionaries series, titled How Miss Major Helped Spark the Modern Trans Movement by Raquel Willis, Miss Major's biography page, which is missmajor.net, What Trans Elder Miss Major Griffin Gracie Wants You to Know by Jeffrey Masters on the advocate podcast LGBTQ&A, HuffPost's Queer Voices series article by James Michael Nichols titled Miss Major on Riding at Stonewall, and then the Outwards Archive 2016 interview with Miss Major. So kind of a lot of sources because I just kept, like, every article that I read, I found another one that I wanted to read more to. So this was really a very enjoyable experience for me. Those are the best subjects where you just, like, want to keep consuming the story and just want to find out as much as you can. Yeah, I had for this, and I talk about it a little bit later because the story is going to look slightly different this week, but I had... 15 pages of research notes for this topic i did i condensed it don't worry but like that's how into miss major i got okay i'm ready james michael nichols for huff post describes miss major as 
quote, an older trans person and a mother figure to countless LGBTQ young people. Griffin Gracie is an elder of the queer rights movement and someone whose legacy almost demands your respect, unquote. I truly couldn't agree more. As I've said, I was just like in awe of doing research this week to the point where I was a little nervous to cover the story because I didn't even have the words to to share everything I wanted to and like what I was feeling reading it. But thankfully, I have had a lot of access to interview material. And so I do actually hope to use a lot of that for this episode. I just can't, I don't feel like I can do her story justice without reading her own answers, which brought me a lot of joy and information. And so I kind of want to pass that on. Whereas a lot of our other subjects don't have as much interview material right. available. If the materials are there and you have that first, that that primary source, like, mm-hmm. yeah, why not use it? Because so many of our sources are a lot of speculation and a lot of just mm-hmm. like they said, or this is what is you know, this is the conclusion they came to. So like, this is, oh, I'm so excited. This is going to be amazing. Yeah. So the format is going to be a little different because I'll use a lot of her direct quotes and came from 15 pages of research, Mm -hmm. which I've condensed. But I think, I hope to give a little bit of a full picture of Miss Major, also Mama, um, for, for this week's topic. So... Miss Major was born in the south side of Chicago on October 25th, 1940. And if I'm being honest, I never really know what people mean when they precede cities with cardinal directions because I know I'm supposed to get something out of it. Like you're telling Mm -hmm. me another piece of information, like the south side of Chicago, like Boston, like southeast or Mm northeast and like West Mm -hmm. Hollywood and stuff like Mm-hmm. But all of that information comes from stereotypes like Goodwill Hunting and Shameless, honestly. Yeah. But from context clues and the okay. fact that every single article I read mentioned this, that she's uh-huh. from the south side of Chicago, I'm assuming it was significant and like mm-hmm. a part of her identity formation. I I don't know. Like, again, mm-hmm. I'm you're supposed to take information from that, but I don't know what. Is it like a quote unquote bad part of Chicago? Because I'm reading it and I was like, Well, I hate when people say that because I'm like, I don't Mm -hmm. know fucking geography. What does that mean? Like, you're telling me that information for a reason, but I don't know what the fucking reason is. Especially if you're not from that city. It's like, what? Okay, okay. they're from the south part of the city. Cool. (laughs) I'm I'm from the west. What is what? Right. Cool. Like, I'm from North Jersey. Does that tell you something? Not really. No, never does. Okay. Okay. So I just found that interesting. But carrying on. Miss Major was assigned male at birth, but by age 13, she, quote, came to know herself and then subsequently came out as trans to her family. Throughout the 50s, the 1950s, as we've seen time and time again, her parents attempted to like untrans her in some way by mm-hmm. exorcism, psychiatry, and lots of praying, all which oh. shockingly, shockingly, mm-hmm. if we're still shocked at this point, mm-hmm. didn't work. Mm. The exorcism didn't work? The exorcism did not work. No. The praying mm-hmm. did not work. Um, the psychiatry unfortunately did not work so you yeah but maybe we've had enough evidence at this point that it doesn't work so let's stop trying how about that how about we try so after these attempts were unsuccessful because that's not how gender and sexuality work her parents kicked her out and so she began taking jobs as a sex worker again as a means of like economic survival 
She briefly attended two colleges, but was kicked out for wearing dresses and other female appearance violations of something. Resigned by all of these things, she moved to New York City, the the Big Apple, in 1962. She was 22 years old. So in New York, even at the height of various civil rights fights, including Black, queer, and women's rights, Miss Major still found herself losing jobs because of her gender presentation. She often would perform in drag shows, but mainly supported herself through sex work. Though there were struggles of moving to New York, including finding places to live safely and supporting yourself financially, Miss Major says in her interview with Jeffrey Masters that Quote, the trans community was everywhere. I went immediately to 42nd Street. Everybody went to 42nd Street. Trans girls, everybody. Finding them was not a problem. They were everywhere. From there, I found an apartment that I moved into. It was six floors of nothing but trans girls. It was fabulous. There were so many of us that it was a full life. And so I wanted to highlight that because one of the things I loved about all of her interview materials was her way of bringing joy to these situations that we already know are difficult and we don't need to emphasize the challenges. We need to talk about them and make people aware of them, but we don't just need to focus on the really hard parts. And so it was really nice to hear her recount that like, despite the difficulties, which she also talks about, that again, trans people existed before 2016 when Mm -hmm. it all of a sudden became a big talking point and a controversy There were many of them, and they all found ways to lift one another up and support each other. Like, that was some a big takeaway from this. And to find, like, a whole community of trans Mm -hmm. girls and trans women, like, to surround yourself in after especially being kicked out for that exact reason and, you know, not being able to find jobs for that reason, like... That's got to be so... That's got to feel so monumental. Definitely. I think it makes the really hard things just slightly less hard and she Mm -hmm. talks about that too saying that you know most every woman in that building of six floors was doing sex work at some Mm -hmm. point as as a means of survival and that's that's difficult of course Mm -hmm. there are some people that even when able to support themselves financially still continued as sex workers like because that was a life that they enjoyed that was a career that they enjoyed sex work is work right and then there were other people who did not have the same experience but still in the times that it was challenging they had each other to Mm -hmm. all kind of understand that same experience and you didn't have to worry about who was living next to you because the person next to you was very familiar with what you were doing because they were doing Mm -hmm. the same thing and While there were some aspects of feeling accepted within this very close group of girls who, again, could understand these experiences and they lived with Miss Major, things were still not, you know, like peaches and cream. They weren't just super easy. Many of the girls did engage in survival sex work and some petty crime to get by, and this was dangerous for a lot of reasons. In one anecdote, which I also just found a little cute and displays to me Miss Major's attitude. Miss Major recalls the start of her friendship with Crystal LaBeja, who's one of the founders of the house system within the ball culture that we've talked about in some previous episodes. 
she was a mother figure for homeless LGBTQ youth in New York City, and they were close friends. And so Miss Major talks about their meeting and says, quote, at the time, we didn't think of each other as legends. We were just young girls out there trying to have a good time. Crystal and I met on 34th and 8th Ave, getting ready to jump into the same car to turn a trick. He made a really sarcastic comment saying, well, I want the light-skinned girl. I got pissed the fuck off and so did she. We walked away and went to eat at Dunkin' Donuts. So that's their meeting. And of course, like, again, that's reflective of just Miss Major's attitude towards Mm -hmm. the life that she was sort of forced into. It's by no means good. I'm by no means saying this is like a meet cute friendship story. But I think... You know, just those little quips demonstrate that there were friends, there were supporters, and people looked out for each other Mm -hmm. during the shitty moments. Mm -hmm. So one of the places that Miss Major and her friends, Sylvia Rivera, Marsha P. Johnson, and historically really good friends topic alumni, Stormy Delavier, found refuge was the Stonewall Inn. Specifically Mm -hmm. the Stonewall Inn because at the time, a lot of other gay bars in the area in New York City and Greenwich Village weren't friendly or as friendly towards trans women. So many of them found this kind of refuge and this community and this safety at the Stonewall Inn. And so, yes, Miss Major is also a Stonewall Riot veteran. Like many queer people, though, Miss Major's activism did not begin at Stonewall. And she really wants to emphasize this in almost every interview I read. Mm -hmm. She describes her first experience that really opened her eyes to the needs of her community. So she's recalling that in the 60s, before the Stonewall Rebellion, she says, quote, I was involved with it, meaning activism, when my friend died, puppy. She was murdered in her apartment, and we knew at the time that someone who knew her had murdered her, and the police did not care. It didn't matter to them at all. And so that started my activism. Because then I wanted to know what cars people would get in, what the person looked like that they got in with. When they left and when they came back was important. And all of us started keeping notes to keep up with the Johns because we didn't know what would happen to us then. She goes on to say, Puppy's murder made me aware that we were not safe or untouchable and that if someone does touch us, no one gives a shit. We only have each other, so I started looking out for myself. Whenever we got into a car, we would write down as much information as possible. We would try to get a guy to walk outside the car so that everyone could see him, so we all knew who he was if she didn't come back. That's how it started. Since no one was going to do it for us, we had to do it for ourselves, unquote. Mm. So I just wanted to include that, one, because it was important to honor that memory and that experience. But also, as we've said consistently on the show, activism existed before and after Stonewall. And Stonewall mm-hmm. is monumental and is kind of like the shifting moment in mm-hmm. gay rights activism as we understand it in America. But mm-hmm. it's definitely not the be all end all. And it wasn't to people even who were there. Right. With a lot of our our subjects pre-Stonewall, a lot of the activism is coming out of the need for survival. And so it isn't, I think, uh, I think people think about Stonewall in a sense of like, everyone banded together and it was like, yay, Mm -hmm. like gay pride. But it's like, no, like this was a need for survival and the activism 
came because like you're like her quote says like nobody else was going to do it for them like they needed to do it right. for themselves so it definitely is there it's a different aspect it's a different experience like it's not the same thing as choosing to be an environmentalist or whatever right it's like right, she needed right. to do this because if she did not like her and her friends would get murdered right right absolutely and so this kind of continues her activism which finds her at the Stonewall Inn the night of June 27th, 1969. And again, this wasn't, like Jared was saying, this wasn't a planned protest. Like, people weren't like, we're all gathering here to protest and we're gonna do for it. civil rights. Like, right. the, people were just regularly gathering at a bar and there was a raid and people were like, this is it, we're done with this shit mm-hmm. now. So it wasn't planned in this way to, like, be the Kickstarter of the modern queer rights movement. So, though she frequented the Stonewall Inn, like many other folks have described in their retelling of this experience, she says something about this night was different. Quote, by the time Stonewall happened, I feel as if things had just gotten to a point of this shit has to stop now. The buck stops here. And just a thing of that night, the police had been chasing gays and us out of bars for years. In every major city, they just come, hit us with their nightstick, and people file out, go home. And this is one of those nights that it just wasn't going to happen, unquote. So that's exactly what you were saying, Jared, of like, this. It, people were just fed up. They realized this wasn't mm-hmm. going to end unless someone attempted to make it stop. Mm-hmm. Also, because of the anti-cross-dressing laws in New York City at the time, as we talked about with Stormy DeLavier's story, Miss Major had to wear three pieces of men's clothing. The night of the Stonewall riots, she was wearing in her own recounting of that night, a t-shirt under her blouse, earrings that said, quote, I'm a man, and a pair of men's underwear as her Mm -hmm. three pieces of men's men's clothing which i love so much me too like that what a great big fuck you yeah Yeah. exactly she's like i'm doing it i'm listening it's like the i'm not touching you thing right it's like i'm not i'm not touching you (laughs) i'm wearing three pieces of men's clothing but i'm also wearing other clothing over that so right like i'm still following your rule right yeah i'm not doing anything i'm within bounds right exactly miss major describes being incapacitated and arrested early in the night She says, quote, I got knocked out early, and to put parentheses there, knocked out by police intentionally. Mm -hmm. So she says, Mm -hmm. quote, I got knocked out early because I heard from the girls that you need to piss the police off so that they would knock you out. And so I was concerned about getting hurt, getting something broken, or being bashed where I couldn't work anymore. So I spit in some guy's face and he knocked me out. Other than that, I don't remember nothing. It was a decision because it was safer. I was young and I was pretty and I wanted to keep my face, unquote. So like that was impactful for me Mm -hmm. reading that of Mm -hmm. it felt like in the moment your options were to be knocked unconscious Mm -hmm. by police and escorted out and arrested or like fight more intentionally and potentially Mm -hmm. have more physical damage Mm -hmm. that would then further impact your ability Mm -hmm. to work and survive right so whoa such fun choices great choices yeah it's it's, right like it's a bad choice and a worse choice it's like how much do you want to get physically assaulted tonight yeah and so it's like you'll intentionally just get like less physically assaulted Mm -hmm. if you can help it like great 
Right, right, right. So a little bit of a taste of why maybe people were annoyed Mm -hmm. and frustrated and were like, can we be done with this shit now? Yeah. So what followed this evening was the birth of what some people acknowledge as the modern gay rights movement. But as we talked about, it's not like nothing came before Stonewall and everything was just fine immediately after the night had ended. Miss mm-hmm. Major describes the nights after Stonewall by saying, quote, from there, things went to West Hell, as they say, and people think, oh, just one night of mayhem. There was three nights of absolute terror. It didn't just happen that one day. Because people were fed up, these times are different. Everybody was in an uproar over the war, over the treatment of blacks, over the treatment of women. Everybody wanted their piece of whatever the American dream was at that time. And our community and the gays and lesbians were no different. And so it was a feeling of, well, goddammit, tonight we're going to do something. And to no avail from our point of view. For what good it did my trans girls, it might as well have not happened, unquote. I thought that was interesting. Miss Major says that trans women, specifically trans women of color, are still often left out of crucial leadership positions in various liberatory movements. She says, quote, just because there's this umbrella, LGBT, we're all grouped together. But guess what? Someone poked a hole in the umbrella and the girls are still getting wet, unquote. Mm. Mm-hmm. Fast forward to an interview in 2021, she echoes the same sentiment, saying, quote, if Stonewall would have made a difference, things would be better today. If the civil rights movement had been a success, Black people wouldn't be 85-90% in prison. So the things mm-hmm. that were, still are. Mm-hmm. So, again, this is kind of a sentiment we've heard from a few veterans of the Stonewall movement, that like there's still work that needs to be done. And it's important to recognize that night as a monumental shift, mm-hmm. but... It wasn't the end-all be-all. Right, and it's still not. And so acknowledging that like that was important, Mm -hmm. but we can't all just rest on that. We can't say we somebody else did that. We're good to go now. Hell no. After Stonewall, Miss Major remained in New York for several more years, but spent many of that time in various New York state prisons and mental institutions, including Clinton Correctional Facility, which housed mainly cisgender men. Here, she had many of her own experiences, which led to her lifelong focus on prison reform and the prison industrial complex, specifically its effect on trans women of color, mainly because still many trans women are housed in men's prisons, and Mm -hmm. we can imagine why that would be dangerous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. While at the facility where she spent time in the psychiatric ward and the general population as well, she also met men who were involved in the Attica prison riots who further shaped her understanding of the prison industrial complex and its harm on marginalized communities. When she was released, she felt it was now part of her mission to, quote, keep her girls safe in there. In 1978, Miss Major took her activism show on the road and headed to San Diego, where she began working with community grassroots organizations providing food to unhoused trans women, many of whom were formerly incarcerated. She provided health care for those impacted by the AIDS epidemic and assisted in planning and gathering resources for the funerals of those whose lives were lost to HIV and AIDS-related illnesses. She worked with the Tenderloin AIDS Resource Center and helped to start San Francisco's first mobile needle exchange. Mm. 
Continuing her work all the way through 2005, Miss Major started working for Building Up and eventually serving as the executive director of the Trans, Gender, Variant, and Intersex Justice Project, which is TGIJP, which provides legal services for transgender and gender variant or gender nonconforming people, primarily those in California prisons, jails, and detention centers. In 2008, she addressed the UN Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination regarding the lack of economic opportunities for trans women of color. Since retiring from TGIJP in 2015, she has begun working on her own house, quote, Mm -hmm. and safe haven for the trans community in the southern U.S., This is known now as the House of Gigi, the Griffin Gracie Historical Retreat and Education Center. She says, quote, I want it to be a retreat where I can bring the girls here and help to create a sense of family for our community, unquote. She is also a producer of the docuseries Trans in Trumpland, which explores the way the country was a breeding ground for people like Donald Trump, who she recognizes as a symptom of a larger anti-trans problem. She says, quote, I would want the acceptance that people, especially in this country due to their forefathers and shit, I would want all of that stuff to be true and inclusive of everybody, not the chosen few. That things were spread equally so that all of us could survive, not you're going to just survive because you're white and 25, but everybody. Someone five foot one, short, fat, a mess, confused, but happy with their existence. Why can't somebody just tell them, That's wonderful. Come over here and let me help you. Do what you want to do, not what I think you should do. And I don't know if that would be a queer future, but it would be a nice one. She continues, There's still the stigma of being a trans person, but the world is changing and we are more prominent than we've ever been in a semi-positive light. They're still killing us. They're still throwing us underneath the jails. But there are more people that are not part of our community who are bitching about the injustices that they are doing to us. That's a major step. My worry and fear about today is that my community is going to look for places to run and hide out of fear of extinction. And I want to do what I can to not ever do that, to have a voice, speak up, fight back, work with people, because everybody doesn't hate us. So work and find the people who believe in who you are and who want us to be successful and live a decent life. Not normal, whatever the fuck that is, but to be the person that we need to be for all of us, unquote. So I know that was a long one, but I just think it's really, really impactful to hear that after all this time, the world that she's asking for, because it is not asking for a lot. And I think... Mm -hmm that we all owe it to our neighbors, to ourselves, to our family, to our friends, to fucking strangers, to attempt to fulfill that goal. Like, Mm -hmm. because to break that down, she's just asking for people to leave trans people alone and let Mm -hmm. them live out their existence in order Mm -hmm. to be successful and thrive. Because Mm -hmm. the most detriment that someone can do to a trans person or a queer person is to just not accept them and actively work against them. Mm -hmm. Like that's harm. Right, right. And in terms of tips for young organizers and activists, Miss Major says, quote, we have a right to be angry, but you have to be angry in degrees. You use your anger to come up with ways to dismantle the bullshit that is oppressing you in the first place. 
There has to be a way to manage this so you accomplish the goals you set out for yourself. It's not an easy thing, but you must nurture, take care of, and look out for yourself too. If you don't take the time to heal your wounds and soothe your ills, you cannot be of any benefit to anybody else, unquote. And presently at the age of 81, Miss Major lives in Arkansas and manages the house of Gigi with her dog, Moose. And so that is a very brief introduction story about Miss Major and some, just a taste of some of the very mm-hmm. wonderful things she's done and continues to do. She's still going strong, 81. She's out here, her and Moose. <laughs> uh, I mean, even though you said you've cut out a lot, and I know you have, and I, I bet you've cut out a lot, but like that's even still so much for what you told us and it seems like she's lived and is continuing to live an incredibly important impactful and powerful life Mm -hmm. and it just feels it's it's like a common thing that i think we always say that it sucks that the activism had to come from a place of dire need Mm -hmm. right but i guess that's where all activism really comes from but it's so great that we have her and we have had elders like her and their voices that set the groundwork for all of the action that's been taken but i think it's really important to then honor her work and honor her legacy in continuing as younger generations Mm -hmm. the things that she has done she has started to do and has made a lot of headway in for our country so that means getting involved with local organizations donating to trans people and trans organizations trans funds i mean there's a Mm -hmm. lot of like funding that can be done there's just a lot of action that can be taken and if we are going to continue the work that she's done and not let all of her 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 progress go to waste then we got to get involved and we have to do things and Mm -hmm. it's just like i feel very grateful as a cis person so i can't even imagine how grateful trans people are to miss major and all of the work that she's done and how vocal she's been and all of the publicity that she's brought to all of the causes so i think we just need to kind of continue that work and get our asses in gear and you know honor honor miss major and and Mm -hmm. don't let all of her all of her hard work go to waste absolutely and one thing she emphasized too and i want to emphasize is activism doesn't have to be every day wearing yourself down at protests and donating funds and all of those things and if you have the means to do so do it but also that doesn't absolve you from caring for and showing support and empathy for the people in your lives or even people who find you to be a trusted resource even if you don't know them that well so Mm -hmm. i think one of the things that stuck out to me from the interviews and from the documentary is that all of those things we mentioned today all of those awards and that involvement and that on the ground work was part of what made miss major so special and and an icon and a and a major activist but what people who are close to her will say is that she gave them support when no one else was able to do that she mm-hmm. kind of gave them a place to feel safe and at home when no one else could do that and so mm-hmm. Even that 
can do so much. Mm -hmm. So whatever you can do, if you can be a, a bit of that person for someone is really important. Yeah. Like, and and in a lot of different respects too, you know, this mm-hmm. story, there's so much intersectionality in it that I couldn't even get to, right. but it doesn't have to be, you know, this specific person. It could just be living your life with that same kind mm-hmm. of energy that she brought to all of her spaces. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Check in on your trans friends, be a good person, do what you can for people while doing enough for yourself. Yeah. And I think we can manage that. We can try to manage that. <laughs> I think so too. Great job. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling. All right. Well, thank you for that story. That was really great. I'm so glad that we got to hear about her and got to cover Miss Major on this podcast. It's about damn time. It and is. thanks for listening. Of course. And, and, And so now we're going to go into mine. And, you know, it was one of those weeks where I was researching a completely different topic and I got, I was getting into it and I was getting, getting into the thick of it. And then I realized I had no idea what I was talking about. And also that most (laughs) of my sources were in Spanish. And I, as I said in the beginning, don't speak Spanish, can't read Spanish. So it did make it a little bit harder. So at the 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 11th hour i pivoted <laughs> okay okay <laughs> i changed direction and coincidentally i am in the same time period and location as okay miss major so this is again once again what are we doing i guess this is this was just like a, a happening was, time mm-hmm. in new york especially during pride month and we're talking about the queer liberation movement in the united states so i was going to talk about the queer liberation movement in Argentina. And and maybe okay. I'll get to that. Maybe I'll I'll touch maybe. that one day. But we want to be able to do it justice. And if we can't read right. the sources, I gotta, I gotta it look may more. be more challenging. Right, right, right. Right. And so when, when we talk about the queer liberation movement in the United States, it all happens within the 1960s and 70s, really. That's, mm-hmm. you know, where the majority of it takes place. So that's where a lot of our stories kind of center around because that's where like a lot of the big happenings were. But Mm -hmm. today I'm actually going to tell you a story about pre-Stonewall, kind of like we were talking about with Miss Major. And so I'm going to tell you about the sip-in at Julius's bar. Okay. And so the sources that I use today are the sip-in at Julius's bar in 1966 from the National Park Service. Before the Stonewall uprising, there was the sip-in by Jim Farber. Remembering a 1966 sip-in for gay rights from NPR's Weekend Edition. Sippin' takes place at Julius's Bar in New York City from History.com's On This Day in History. Julius's from the NYC LGBT Historic Sites Project, and an article by Dan Avery for NBC News. And I'm not going to read you the title for that one, because... Oh, spoilers! On the afternoon of April 21st, 1966, in New York City's West Village, so... We're right in the village like you were talking Mm -hmm. about. We're right back where the Stonewall Uprising would take place three years down the line and where Stormy DeLavier would later patrol. Dick Leitch, Craig Rodwell, John Timmons, and Randy Wicker walk into Julius's bar on the corner of Waverly Place and 10th Street, announce to the bartender that all four men are gay as they approach the bar and that they refuse to leave without being served. 
Okay. And although the bartender puts his hand over the glass he just set out for Dick Leitch, who's leading the pack, the four men take their seats anyway, and thus begins their sip-in. Wow. So, the four men are a part of the Mattachine Society, an early national gay rights organization founded in Los Angeles in 1950, with local chapters popping up all over the nation during the decade. Their goal as an organization is to attempt at breaking the taboo around homosexuality and present themselves as clean-cut model citizens to combat homophobia and carve a place in the public sphere for openly gay men. So it's like being like, hey, we're not as bad as you think we are. We're not these national threats. We can work in the government. (laughs) Right. We're not terrorists. It's all good. We just are normal people. (laughs) And while every chapter of the organization had their own priorities and agendas with the same singular overarching goal of queer liberation, the New York chapter specifically organizes lectures about how to fight arrests and solicited research from scientists and psychologists. They hold demonstrations, civil disobediences, and legal avenues and grassroots information campaigns. And As we know, movements aren't created and evolved overnight, and the Mattachine Society is really putting in the work to make themselves known and heard, even in the face of their homophobic family members, neighbors, and even their own government. By the 1960s, one of the New York chapter's concerns is a New York State Liquor Authority regulation, which is never official, but widely spread, that bars shouldn't serve drinks to known or suspected gay men or lesbians since their presence was, quote-unquote, inherently disorderly. (sighs) And so, you may be thinking, what counts as disorderly when it comes to a gay person sitting at a bar? Well, according to the police, one man buying another man a drink, or talking to another man in a flirtatious manner or tone, is enough grounds for someone to be charged with disorderly conduct in New York City at this time. Like, we've talked about this so much, but it is genuinely so funny to me. And I think this is what I allow myself to laugh at today as well. The the amount that people like straight cis people are threatened like like genuinely threatened by just like the existence of queer people as if like yeah like it just doesn't make sense like they put so much of their time and effort into it and like your your homophobic jokes and your transphobic jokes are about how like people like queer people are non-threatening and that they're like weaker and like not like demeaning but then on the other hand you're right. like we have to make policies because these are national threats to our security and our children's secure like it's just i also was listening to a podcast um to the you're wrong about podcast I forget which one it was, but about how like really into policing gayness cops got to the point where it was like, you have to just be gay. Like they would just like pretend to get someone to flirt with them. To then catch them. Like, it's like, no, you're just flirting with a man. Right. It's- <laughs> At that point, you're, fl- you're flirting. Yeah. It's, it's just so confusing the lengths people would go to to justify this shitty like homophobic agenda. It's so ridiculous. <laughs> and so signs would even be hung around bars or like bar counters stating, quote unquote, men must face the bar as two men even having their bodies just like turned towards each other <laughs> signaled a queerness that is like so repugnant that it could end in a, in an arrest. It's just like so homoerotic to look at another man. 
Right. Like, it's like, don't, if you even think about another man, if you, like, you, your friend, don't even look mm-hmm. at him. Don't Which, even think about him. There was another thing I was just watching that I think is especially relevant that was like, it's really telling on yourself when you do shit like this. Because if you're like, I can't look at another man without wanting to have sex with him, it's like, maybe that's a, maybe well, that's what, you. What if, yeah, what if we took, what if we looked at that? What if we examined right, that? Right. What if we critically examined the fact that you, are just like maybe you're really attracted to men yeah. and and right. so you're just you think that that's everyone's experience but right. it's not it's just you, yours right and also just to throw it out there i think this all stems from one toxic masculinity two misogyny it's like all of these things it's like we're teaching men to hate women but then the yeah. object of men is to get with women. But all you right. want to do is impress your male friends about how much you get with women that mm-hmm. you hate. It's like, so the whole point is that you're just like trying to impress men. Right. It's, it's right. this, it's the country's so a fucking mess. It's, yes. And like, and like intimacy, oh like God. eye contact is intimacy and we can't have that with men. And that's probably why men no. can't look you in the face still to this day oh my god it's horrible (laughs) the worst fucking eye contact ever (laughs) so this regulation by the sla no serving liquor to queer people is the reason why for example bars like the stonewall inn which is maybe 500 feet around the corner from julius's bar aren't able to obtain a liquor license making it more susceptible to police raids for serving alcohol illegally and now There's only so many places that queer people can congregate in public at this time, and so a lot of these places just serve alcohol anyway without a license. Making it nearly impossible for bars and other meeting spots to serve alcohol, which is a really big social tool used in these environments, is a governmental loophole to entrap queer people and take away their free right to assembly. It's governmental oppression against queer people at its finest. But in the eyes of the written law, the cops are just upholding the law Mm -hmm. by conducting raids, arresting queer people, and finding these bars that aren't even given liquor licenses in the first place. I think that's an important separation to make, that the police are not the only you know, like enemies in these situations. They're enforcing no. the laws and definitely doing police brutality in gruesome and horrible ways. But someone else is deciding to write the laws and other mm-hmm. people, other community members are deciding to also call the police on people. So like there's a lot of elements involved. And in then in that way, I want to make sure we're like extending our mm-hmm. analysis to like the policies that existed at the time as well. Right. There are so many outside environmental community factors that are playing in on the oppression and suppression of queer people and in the things that they can do with their activities Mm -hmm. that it's not just one source. It's not just we can't just point one finger and say this is the person that's doing it because it's everybody that's doing it. Yeah. And so this is where the ideation of the Sippin sort of starts. As the New York City LGBT Historic Sites Project puts it, quote, the Sippin was part of a larger campaign by more radical members of the Mattachine Society to clarify laws and rules that inhibited the running of gay bars as legitimate, non-mob establishments and to stop the harassment of gay bar patrons, end quote. And so throughout the decade prior to the Mattachine members sip-in, they witness a slew of sit-ins performed by Black civil rights activists across the U.S. and take the page directly from their book. 
right? So we see a direct correlation of the Sippins goals with these of the sit-ins, such as the Greensboro Four in 1960, in which Ezel Blair Jr., David Richmond, Franklin McCain, and Joseph McNeil, four Black students from North Carolina Agricultural and Technical College, staged the first sit-in in their area, sitting at a whites-only lunch counter and refusing to give up their seats until their demands for service were met. So here's what happens on the actual day of the sip-in, though. The four men, Dick Leitch, Craig Rodwell, John Timmons, and Randy Wicker, invite four newspaper reporters to cover their protest. The goal is to go to a bar, be denied service as usually happens, and then the group will file a complaint with the New York City Commission on Human Rights. The plan is to convene at noon at the Ukrainian American Village Hall, a bar on St. Mark's Place. However, the Mattachine activists are 10 minutes late. And in those 10 minutes, one of the reporters who is there for the New York Times goes to the bar and asks the owners how they feel about the sipping that's about to happen, essentially tipping off the bar owner, who then shuts down the bar right away. And so he puts a sign in the window that reads, if you are gay, please stay away. That's so much. So dramatic. And the message of the management's attitude is received loud and clear by the four men who then decide to move on to plan B. They move across the street to the Dom, a club that acts as a concert venue by night. Plan B, though, goes strikingly similarly to how plan A goes. The Dom, with an unwelcoming sign hung in their window, is suspiciously closed. But... The Mattachine activists came here with a goal, and they aren't just about to walk away because their two first options don't work out. Also, what a bad investigative reporter that New York Times reporter is to be like, even if someone's a few minutes late, you don't see anything happening. And you're like, so how do you feel about the incoming events? Like, that's so bad. The incoming protest. Sorry, go ahead. I just wanted to note that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, asterisk that. So- Reporters in tow, the activists make their way to 8th Street and Avenue of the Americas to Howard Johnson's, a place that never seems to be closed, and luckily, it's open. According to Dick Leitch, Howard Johnson's is a place where gay people would go after hours and, on occasion, fool around in the bathrooms. Mm. But so, the men enter and they slip into a corner booth. A waitress comes over to take their order, and they hand her a statement that reads, quote, We are homosexuals. We believe that a place of public accommodation has an obligation to serve an orderly person, and that we are entitled to service so long as that we are orderly, end quote. And remember, the Mattachine Society's goal is to prove that queer people, specifically gay men and women, are clean-cut model citizens. So they're dressed nicely, they aren't doing anything too large, you know, no yelling, no arguing, no signs, just like a simple little note, which is radical at the time, but, you know, it's not too wild. Right, like, consider, for those of you who may have visited the Jersey Shore in the summer, that's what I'd consider disorderly, and people just leave all those people Mm -hmm. alone. So, like, we're nowhere near compared to, like, Jersey Shore summer. No spring breakers. Right, right. We're not, like, Fort Lauderdale. Right. No, 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 no. They're they're just, like, well-dressed, They're just, like, just walking in and being, like, hi, can I have a glass of Chardonnay, please? Right. And, like, (laughs) but also, like, there's a conscious decision to look and act the best that they can. Right, right. So it's, like, they're not even being normal. They're going, like, above and beyond to be the nicest and the most well-behaved that they can be. And so... 
the waitress becomes flustered and calls over the manager to help deal with the situation, not knowing if she should serve them or not. Because, you know, there's a risk of losing a liquor license if you're found out to have been serving these people, even though it's not official. You know, that's just how it goes. Mm -hmm. And the manager, upon reading the report, looks to the men and then looks to the press and says, why shouldn't they be served a drink? They look like perfect gentlemen to me. I don't think the government has any right to question a man's sex life. (laughs) And so the manager orders the waitress to bring the men drinks on the house. Wow. And so the men look at each other and to the press and they're like, what just happened? And they start to get a bit nervous. And as quoted in the modern New York Times article that I used for this story, Dick Leicht recalls thinking, what do we do now? What if no one refuses us? Which is like this classic, like something keeps happening and then you want someone to see that it's happening and then it stops happening and then you have to convince them that it like was right, happening. Right. To be fair though, the first two places they couldn't go to were like explicitly homophobic. And we're like, but I, but to invite the reporters, it's exactly what you're saying. of like, I can't get my right. computer to work. And then someone looks at it and they're like, oh, it's working. Now. Like, it's just right. that moment of being like, are you freaking kidding me? Right. And so- Also, I think now is probably a good time to point out that these activists, while performing like a brave radical move, are still able to benefit from their actions because of their whiteness and to be welcomed into the bar with drinks on the house. Right. You know, Black activists that are part of the sit-ins across the country are met with violent patrons, violent police, unlawful arrests, Mm -hmm. death threats, and other disgusting actions against them, all because of the color of their skin. Like, so while the actions are the same and they're fighting for very similar causes, I think it's important to keep in mind that the Mattachine activists are benefiting greatly because they're white and because they're cis and able-bodied and men. So not to detract from the Mattachine sip-in or like Mm sip-ins, the multiple attempts that they make, but the fact that they're able to have the thought of like, what if we're not denied service is laughable because it's like, what if today we're not oppressed? Like we were hoping to show that we were because they are oppressed as queer people, but they also get the times when they aren't oppressed, whereas right. black people and other people of color just do not get that luxury. Right, right. And yeah, like the fact that I think it's also not unfortunate, but like that the mission is to be accepted as something still that you're like to be accepted for being a gay man, but not authentically you're still trying to actively fit in being like a clean cut white cis person and so like that definitely the fact that they're able to pass in that way it it is a huge benefit and that like Mm -hmm. to examine the fact that like that definitely plays a part in like why maybe this first attempt went that way rather than like bringing out the fire hoses as we saw in some other sit-ins and protests across the country like, what are the differences in those in, in those situations? Let's think about them. Right. Their whiteness is always going to surpass their queerness, mm-hmm. always, in terms of privilege. Yeah. You know. So after they enjoy their free drink at Howard Johnson's, the activists and reporters head to Plan C, and they make their way over to the mafia-owned tiki bar, the Wakiki. And similarly to Howard Johnson's, against their plan to make a big stand and to get their, you know, fight public attention in the papers, the almost amused manager tells the men, how do I know you're homosexuals? Give these guys a drink on us. (laughs) And so again, they're kind of like, fuck, what is happening? And so they accept the free drink. But at this point, John Timmons, one of the activists, tells the other men, I'm starting to feel drunk. 
we better get this done already. Mm-hmm. And so feeling a bit desperate and eager to find a place where they could get the desired results, the men trudge over to plan D, Julius's bar, which had been raided by the police only 10 days earlier, as Julius's is known to be gay-friendly-ish and would serve queer patrons. So I say ish because they accepted queer patrons, but management was determined to not let it become a gay bar. Okay. Dick Leitch, in an interview with NPR, would rationalize this move saying, quote, the bar would have a sign in the window saying, this is a rated premises. And very often they'd put a uniform cop on a stool inside the door and he would sit there until the trial came up, end quote. So the men knew for certain that this bar would not serve them because Mm -hmm. of their upcoming trial and they were already at stake for losing their liquor license, which they don't want to happen. So they don't need anything else to like really nail, put the final nail in the coffin. So the men and their reporters, which are magically still going along with this entire event, enter Julius's and spot a sign that reads, patrons must face the bar while drinking, a requirement to prevent gay cruising. And this is when they approach the bar and the bartender puts his hand over the glass, refusing Mm -hmm. them service. I think it's against the law, the bartender replies, giving both the activists and the reporters the moment they had been hoping for. Mm -hmm. The reporter snapped this moment with the hand covering the glass, which solidifies the Sippin's monumental nature. And some accounts of the Sippin maintain that the bartender is actually playing along with the Mattachine activists in order to help them attract publicity. And from the accounts of the actual activists themselves, it seems like kind of revealing that they had asked the bartender to cooperate meaning deliberately deny them service promising that they would help with the bar's legal issues Mm. and so he plays along and everybody kind of gets what they want and so it's unfortunate because this is a real thing that's happening queer people Mm. are getting denied right they are still being oppressed and of course for white men going into a bar and, and trying to get denied service is not the not the epitome of of queer oppression in the United States and in New York City. So it's kind of like a shame that it's being framed or being seen in this light of like, right. oh, we're, we're dying to be oppressed because they right. are being oppressed. But it's like at this point- It's the documentation want... of it. Like they need the recognition that it's happening. Exactly. They want people to see it. Right, because it's almost like- being gaslit for a while and i don't use that lightly of like Mm -hmm. this is happening but people are constantly Mm -hmm. saying it's not happening or it's not detrimental to your lives and so they're trying to get the recognition that like it is happening and and you can see the Mm -hmm. impact that it could have on a person and i also would wonder though you know, obviously the first two, it, it is still notable that they had those signs in the window. It also is notable right. that at Julius's, there's typically a, a police officer there. So like, regardless of whether it was a co- cooperative effort, you know, they're still being, being investigated for the very thing. And I wonder at the other places as well, how the reporters identified themselves while in this. Because like, if you roll in with a posse of four people saying that they're actively engaging in protests and then four people there with cameras Mm -hmm. to take photos, I think maybe that also tips the balance as to like what's going to it. Because it's it's just not an organic moment. So people are going to act 
out of the ordinary, right. which may be a factor. Right, right, right. And it's just like it's the the juxtaposition between the activism and consequences Miss Major is facing versus these four men. And I think the publicity of it all, like they were able to mm-hmm. get four reporters to come down and and document this where people right. queer people queer people of color were like literally fighting for their lives and still are and right. are getting no coverage of it. So yeah, they're like the power imbalance is like yeah. very real. Everybody, right. you know, queer yes. people are being oppressed and there is this gaslighting of it's all happening. It's a messy situation, right. but the way that it's Definitely. playing out just is not faring well for these men. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's looking like, like, like you said, the oppression is there, but it looks like, can't we just be oppressed today? And it, right. like, that's not what it is. That's right. not fundamentally what's happening. But it, in terms of like the appearance of it all, in that it, moment. it can come across that way. Especially yeah. when, as you were saying, at the same time, Miss Major is like, my activism started because my friend was murdered and no one cared. Right. And so like, of course that's different, but I also think, you know, in this example, it may not be the highest levels of oppression that the men are facing, but it's easier to document. Mm -hmm. It's easier to demonstrate that. Whereas you can't call a reporter every night to come hang out to see if the cops come beat you up that night. So like, that's a way to document some of what you're like a a slice of what your experience has been. Right. Especially because queer women of color, queer people of color, at this time and in this place specifically police and newspapers were labeling them nhi in their reports no humans involved Mm -hmm. so it's like the white men are using the privilege that they have whether they know it or not to still get Mm -hmm. coverage of oppression that is happening obviously not to the same degree but at least it's getting some coverage right right exactly at least it's bringing attention to the fact that like this is happening for right. people who may not have in the past acknowledged that this was that happening. any of it is happening any yeah. right 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 and so the morning after the four men were denied service at julius's the new york times runs a less than ideal story entitled quote three deviates invite exclusion by bars which basically highlights how they're looking to be denied Two weeks later, though, a second article, more favorable to the gay activists, is published by the Village Voice. Either way, the publicity from these articles prompts a swift response from the chairman of the state liquor authority, who claims that his organization never threatened the liquor licenses of the bars that serve queer people, and that instead it was up to the individual bars and bartenders to decide, which, bullshit. You can't work with the police and allow raids to happen specifically on bars that you won't give licenses to that all happen to be queer and queer-friendly spaces. doesn't work that way. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's just not... Also, love how, first of all, the New York Times reporter who fucked the whole thing up to begin with further proves the point in their shitty article by using the word deviance. Mm -hmm. So... Again, the self-awareness is at like a negative seven, but okay. It's just non-existent. Yeah. From this, though, the Commission on Human Rights becomes involved, stating that they have a jurisdiction based over discrimination based on sex, and that the denial of bar service to a queer patron solely for that reason comes within those bounds. 
And so the Mattachine Society's chapter in New Jersey begins to sue bars that refuse service to gay people. And these cases are brought to the Supreme Court, who rules in 1967 that, quote, well-behaved homosexuals could not be denied service, end quote. And so the ruling also adds, quote, in our culture, homosexuals are indeed unfortunates, but their status does not make them criminals, end quote, which like keep those little flourishes to yourself. Don't don't put that in the ruling. Right. We didn't have to add those little like adjectives. We could have taken those out. Yeah. The schools yeah, like, of homophobia are not necessary. They're not no. received well. Like. Thanks for the crumb of human rights. Much appreciated. But like you kind of cut it down even more when you add that stuff. Like thanks Thanks, for acknowledging our humanity. Right. (laughs) It's so confusing. And so the ruling also notes that indecent behavior must be more than same-sex cruising, kissing, or touching. Although getting a liquor license for an openly gay bar or being an openly gay patron both remain incredibly challenging after this ruling. Like you were saying, it's not like one ruling or event happens and then the next day it's like everything's better now. It's like everything still continued to be shit for quite a while, which is what leads up to the Stonewall Uprising. It's like this right. is one of the events that is getting publicity for queer oppression, mm-hmm. but then it's still continuing to mount and right. and reaching a peak at, at Stonewall three years right. later. Right. Or two two years later. And even though the ruling was a bit lackluster in terms of enforcement of actionable change, the sipping at Julius's bar remains important as one of the first steps of resistance leading up to the queer liberation movement in the United States. Julius's bar was added to the National Register of Historic Places on April 21st, 2016, commemorating its 50 years of service. And luckily, the bar remains open to this day in New York's West Village and is usually packed on the weekends. And that is the story of the Sippin' at Julius's Bar. Very nice. Thank you for sharing that. I think it's, it is really important during Pride Month to like expand the stories that we tell. Mm-hmm. Because I know at least for me in my spaces, I've definitely heard about Stonewall. I know you know a lot about it and a lot of our stories do definitely have intersections there like mm-hmm. like part of our stories touch on that a lot but it is really interesting to kind of see the build-up that led to that mm-hmm. um and this was a very interesting story that i think boils down to media incompetence <laughs> oh absolutely this, and the story is one that while i was reading it i was like mm, should i do it and i was like yeah i should do it and i was like oh should i do it and then i was like yeah you should do it because it is really yeah. monumental and it is an important first step but it is it's such a complex topic that there's yeah. a lot of factors that go into it's it so nuanced folks yeah, yeah. it's do nuanced you... it peel this onion back don't mm-hmm. yeah there's a lot that goes it's, into it it's it's a thing that happened that i wanted to bring the attention to yeah And you don't have to have a firm stance on everything, you, Jared, or I, or anyone listening. Like, you don't have to have, like, a perfectly clear-cut opinion on, on, like, this is good, this is bad, this is morally okay, this is morally not okay. That's not how history is. Yeah, it's okay to live in a space that's, like, this has some positive aspects and i could see where it was coming from but maybe like the execution could have been different or whatever like there's room to like feel the whole thing out so so feel feel it out folks yeah feel your onions feel it out 
Yeah, and you know what? Maybe let's all meet up at Julius's bar next week and, and go for a drink. Let's do it. And then we'll hit the stone wall and after. 21. Perfect. Do you think do you think they have like tacky drink specials? Oh god, I hope. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to episode 20 of Historically Really Good Friends, where we talked about pre-Stonewall New York City. This is your weekly reminder that acknowledging the queerness of our history makes making non-sexual eye contact with your friend at the bar a little bit more fun. Please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen. And to see photos from this week's episode, make sure to check out our Instagram at Historically Really. Also, reminder to send us your personal stories at historicallyreallygoodfriends at gmail.com. We hope to see you again next week. Adios. Bye.